Tonight we're going to be in 1 Samuel 4. Now what we saw the last time was the joy of Samuel's relationship with his Lord. And the fact that it was growing as a young man. He kind of knew some of the things of the Lord. But then the Lord actually calls him when he's in his bed. And it takes Eli to help explain to him uh, that it is God's voice. And that you should say, here I am, Lord, your servant. Uh, What can I do for you? But the tragedy is that as Samuel's relationship with the Lord was growing, Eli, the priest, his relationship with the Lord was kind of waning. And it's very sad. And really, when we look at our lives as believers, we're either going in one or two directions with the Lord. We're either getting closer to him or we're getting further apart. And sometimes it's a good reality check, an introspective look to ask ourselves, where am I with the Lord? You know? When I first got saved and all the excitement, am I still excited for the Lord? Do I still want to come before him and just talk to him during the day? So you can see a lot of human nature in a lot of the characters or the historical figures in the Bible. And today we're going to look at the dying out of the old guard of Israel, of the spiritual leadership. And really now a new testing of Israel by the Philistines, their arch enemy. So starting in verse 1. And the word of the Lord, or excuse me, the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped besides Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today? Before the Philistines, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes from among us, it may save us. It may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, let me just look at this. Uh, the, the whole chapter delineations we know actually came several centuries later. When the Bible was written, be it Old or New Testament, it didn't come with, you know, the Apostle Paul or, or uh, Samuel or the Apostle Peter writing. And this is chapter two. They were letters to be read. They were historical records. So, you know, I don't think there was anything very divinely inspired by the chapter delineations. As a matter of fact, The first sentence is, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel, which really should have been with the previous chapter. Because the next sentence says, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. Now, this was a mistake. They made a mistake by doing this. This was not Samuel's doing. So it's very important that we understand that. This is still the old guard, the old mentality of the Israelites. When Samuel comes in and takes over, you see things start to change for the better. Israelites and Philistines, obviously longtime enemies. They were camped now um, a few miles from each other, inland from the Mediterranean, and uh, several miles west of Shiloh, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Now, what I need to do for you is to explain what this Ark of the Covenant is. Otherwise, what we read is a little hard to understand. This Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of the Lord, was basically a box that God told Moses to make. And it was overlaid with pure gold. It was a beautiful box. And it had a cover on it. Now, the box had, um, it was very ornamental. There were uh, loops attached to the sides of the box, two on each side. 
poles would go through, and the priests would carry uh, these, these poles. So they really shouldn't touch the box or open it up or anything to that nature. And the reason being is because on the top of the box was a lid. Now, it sounds so sterile, but this was a beautiful, if you ever see an artist's rendition of what the Ark of the Covenant would have looked like, uh, based on the descriptors in the scripture, very, very ornamental, very beautiful. So the lid had uh, two cherubim, two angels facing each other with their wings outstretched behind them and kind of touching on the top. And what God said was, my actual presence would dwell on top of that mercy seat. So he, he, it was called the Shekinah glory. The glory of the Lord would physically be there. How impressive is that? So the Israelites knew that wherever this box was, this ark, the Lord was physically there to comfort them, to encourage them, to protect them. Okay? And this particular ark was kept in the Holy of Holies in the temple. That only under certain conditions with certain people could actually go in there and, and be in the presence of that ark. Anyone else would have been killed. And we're going to see that. Probably the best, I don't know, uh, I, kinda, I don't know if I should say this, but it, years ago, remember Indiana Jones, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's probably a not bad idea of how it you know, was ornamental, it was powerful. When the bad guys would open it up, you know, uh, they were consumed by the spirits and you know, they were completely annihilated. And the only way to be safe from that was to not look at it uh, because it had, God's presence was in that. Now, what did it contain? Well, initially it contained the Ten Commandments, right? So the Ten Commandments were in that box. As time went on, the golden pot of manna was also contained in there. And the manna, remember, what is it? It came down from heaven. And that was really a picture of the bread of life and really emblematic of Christ as the bread of life. So that was in that box. The third thing that was in that box was the uh, Aaron's rod that budded and blossomed when the... the uh, those of Israel were, were arguing about who had authority, and God said, these are my men. And, and Aaron put his rod down, and other men put their rod down. He said, the one that actually comes back to life, the wooden staff that they cut from the tree and fashioned into a, a, a rod or a staff, the one that comes back to life, that's the man that I chose. And Aaron's rod budded. So that went in there, too. And they all had significance. So this is the ark that we're talking about. Now, we see that Israel gets defeated in battle. And the question is, why? See, God said all throughout the Old Testament that if you follow me and you worship me and you uh, do what I ask you to do, then things will go good. Your crops will grow. You'll have protection from your enemies and all these things. Very simple things for the children of Israel to understand. But he said, if you turn from me and you go follow idolatry and whore after other gods and gods that aren't even real, he goes, then you will lose that protection and you'll pretty much face my wrath. So that was called idolatry and that was bad. So instead of the Israelites um, repenting of their idolatry, which was going on at this particular time, they just, you know, it's so funny because we have simple, even as believers, simple things. You know, I'm on the wrong path. I look in the mirror and, you know, I know there's something wrong. So I repent. I, I, I want to have that relationship with the Lord again restored. But sometimes what we do is we try to find all other easier remedies than to humble ourselves and repent. And this is what the children of Israel were doing. You see, in Joshua 6, they also took the ark of the Lord. 
And they brought it before, the, the priests brought it, and they marched around Jericho seven times, and the walls came crashing down. But the spiritual health of the nation was good at that time. So God honored that. God says all throughout the scripture, if you honor me, honor me, I will honor you. It's very, very simple things that even the, the most simple among us can understand God's precepts. Right? I just love that about him. Uh, you just can't mess it up, you know, or you, sh you shouldn't have to. Now, what, was, what made this worse was the fact that if you see that Hophni and Phinehas, remember Eli's wicked sons, were bearing the Ark of the Covenant. These guys were wicked. And he, so wicked, the father rebuked them, and, and God said, I'm going to judge these guys. And they had the nerve to actually take the Ark of God and go out there. So you know there's going to be disaster happening here. Because what we'll see is that God is not, rep, God is not mocked, the Bible says. God will not be profaned by vile rep, representatives. Now, it's funny because in the Old Testament, you would see fire come from heaven or the earth opening up. And do we think now in New Testament age that God is okay with wicked men representing him, maybe even in a pulpit. He, he's not mocked, and he will deal with those representatives. It took a while before he judged Hophni and Phinehas, but he'll also judge those, even today, that mock his name. Right? Repentance. For the prideful soul, uh, it, it, it's not something that people really want to do, but it's something that's necessary. And the beautiful thing is uh, 1 John 1.9 says that uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. So, uh, so what happens is, at any particular time, if we're doing something wrong, we can stop in our tracks and ask the Lord for repentance. And he's always there to give it, give it out. He's always there to forgive us and restore that relationship. But we have to lay down our wills at times to do that, and that's very difficult. Verse 5. So when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of their shout, they said, what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. So you see, they have a, a basic understanding. Well, they use gods as a plural because they have gods. They don't understand the almighty God. But they do, they do have some semblance of the power of the Hebrews' God, right? Be strong and conduct, conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also, the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. So what happens here? They take the ark of the covenant. They bring it into the, the battle. They work themselves up to an emotional frenzy, right? And they had no spiritual foundation for that frenzy. The mind is a powerful motivator. What they did was no different than you can see in any sports team, any two football teams that come together, and they're shouting in the locker room, and they're getting excited, and they're smacking each other, and they go out on the field, and they lose. So the emotional frenzy in and of itself means nothing. 
And this is what I like in this too. They worked themselves up, but it didn't mean anything because God wasn't with them. And that's the most important thing. Actually, the frightened Philistines were ordered to fight like men, and they won, probably out of fear. They were probably so terrified that they would have made slaves that they fought to the last breath, and they won. So, and again, the mind is a powerful motivator. You had two teams coming together, fighting, both, both worked up, and the one actually wins probably out of fear, right? And you know, you can see this in some forms of religion today. There's a lot of emotional frenzy, but there's no substance behind it. Everything now becomes an experience. And you've met people like that. Unless there's a, the hair is standing up on their neck, unless people are shouting and jumping around and, and making a lot of noise, God wasn't in it because they're living by experience. See, that's a problem because I tell you what, we've all woken up some days, some mornings, and just not feeling well. It's maybe it's cloudy outside, it's raining, and you, you're emotionally down. That is not an indicator of your spiritual health. By the same token, we can be excited and jumping around and feeling really good, but that does not mean that we're tight with the Lord. So emotions are very fickle, and they're not a good indicator of where we are with the Lord. Verses 6 through 8 are very interesting with the Philistines. They do say, the, the, the Hebrews, God's plural, but they do say that the power of this God they're amazed. Actually, I'm amazed when I read this because they almost seem to have more of a fear of the Hebrews' gods than some of the children of Israel. Right? They, we've heard what, what their gods can do. Some of them probably were just afraid to go. And uh, I guess their leader had to work them up and say, listen, you guys got to fight. Because if we don't fight, we're going to be taken as slaves. So they, uh, maybe they went into it with a defeatist attitude, but they still won because the Lord was not in the battle. You know, I, I look at this too, and uh, uh, you know, it's it's humorous because there are times that we can see uh, even some who are unbelievers that sometimes seem to have more of a fear of God than those in the Christian faith. These are hard things to say, but they do happen. I remember um, how many of you are familiar with Christopher Hitchens, the famous atheist, right? The new atheist. You guys don't know him, <laughs> man. You don't get out much. <laughs> Real bright guy. I think he's like 61 or 62. Actually, we need to pray for him because he was recently diagnosed, I think, with a form of cancer, but some type of disease. Here's a guy who, it's so odd. He calls himself an atheist, but he knows a lot, so much about Christianity. It blows me away. It's kind of interesting. I don't know, maybe the Lord's working on him. He debates. Actually, he goes on to a, a, some type of venue with a woman who's a pastor of the Unitarian Church, she thinks, this guy's a bright guy, you don't want to mess with him unless you really know your stuff. So she tries to get him on her side and she says, I, have, I remember I read the article from the pulpit, it was hysterical, and she goes, she thinks she's going to you know, get him to come to her, uh, her side, she goes, you know what, I'm not into that whole fundamentalist Christian thing, you know, the, the whole hell thing and you got to go through Jesus, and the, the atheist stops her, Christopher Hitchens, and he goes, you really don't believe that? She goes, no. He goes, well, then you're, you're in no way, in any meaningful way, a Christian. Here's an atheist slamming this woman. He goes, it's almost like he's like, I know the Christian faith, and I know what, what, what it is to be a Christian, and the way, what you're saying, if you believe that, you're not a Christian. So we had an atheist pretty much given an apologetics lesson to a Unitarian minister. The world's a bizarre place. You know, though, we, we, we need to love the world. We need to love the world that God lo like God loves the world. Wouldn't it be great if we could get some of these, uh, these scientists and stuff? And we, there's plenty of them that are creationists. 
Uh, but, you know, there's something about the guy that I like. I mean, he's always grumpy, but there's just something about him. You know, Lord, I pray that you'd save him. Uh, so continuing on, verse 10. So first the Israelites lose 4,000, and then later on, this battle, they lose 30,000 foot soldiers. So we see that Israel's carnal idea does not work. Now, in verse 11, God strikes them at the heart of their religion. He strikes them. He takes away their charm. They turned God's Ark of the Covenant into a charm. He took that away. He had it removed. He kills their representatives, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, right? The priests' uh, sons. And certainly it's a cause for those to go into a, a depression, in a sense. They get upset. You know, the Israelites are, are, are devastated over this, emotionally, physically, and many spiritually. But here's a few lessons learned. Number one, idolatry. God won't tolerate it. You know, this kind of stuff, in, in a lesser way, of course, uh, can happen to us. The Lord will not allow us to be unsuccessful if we are steeped in idolatry, if we're mocking his name, but also calling ourselves Christians at the same time. And it's a painful process when it happens. We'll see later on that Israel has to clean up its idolatry before God can now start to give them the victory again. Right? And what we see is instead of repenting again, the mob rules. Now, there's no mention of Samuel. We, we keep saying the people, the people, even the elders, but no mention of Samuel in this. He might have said, they might not have even consulted him. You know, hey, this, this young new guy on the scene, you know, we got Hophni and Phinehas over here. So Samuel's really not a part of this. And I see this mob rule in when Moses was taking too long on the mountain with God. And the Israelites say to Aaron, you got to do something. We don't know what happened to Moses. So they have this bright idea to melt all their gold and fashion a golden calf, right? So we see mob rule uh, with God's people before. We've seen this with Joshua and Caleb. Yeah, we can take those uh, Canaanites. Let's do it. God said we could. And they were shouted down. I remember when I did the study on Caleb, they were completely shouted down by the mob to the point where there was almost a point where they would, might, might have tried to kill them. So we see mob rule in God's people sometimes. And they wanted to do something religious, but not biblical. And there's a big difference. They wanted to use the Ark of the Covenant as an amulet, a charm, a religious item to defeat the Philistines, and it didn't work. But that doesn't happen today. When I go on patrol, you know, some of my guys, uh, it's, it's interesting, or, or people, other police officers that I know, uh, they'll have their police hats and they take off their hat and there's a mask card in there or a pin or something to that nature. And on their ballistic vest, it's supposed to save them from getting shot and killed by a, a bullet, they'll have like a, a St. Michael pin and all these different things. Guys, man, that's not going to stop the bullet, you know what I'm saying? Uh, that's just a charm. It's not going to do anything for you. Uh, I also see uh, people, you know, they're trying to sell their house and they'll, they, they come up with these great ideas. Who do you, who, which saying is you bury them upside down in the front lawn? And, you know, and I, I'm trying not to be making fun, but it's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's idolatry. My grandmother had a, uh, uh, I would go into her bedroom and she would have a, a, a three-foot Pope doll with the scepter and the hat. And I was like, that's kind of creepy, you know, it's, but that was her thing. And I try to talk to her about a relationship with God. And, and the good thing is before she died, I really think she understood it. So praise God. I believe she's in a good place. But people will do all kinds of things, all kinds of things, even expend more energy 
then have a relationship with the Almighty God. He, I mean, what, what better of a deal can you get than that? The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Creator of all the earth and, and everything, the universe and what He's going to do. He just says, you know, I love you. Come to me. If you seek me with a whole heart, you'll be found by me. You don't get a better deal than that. And it's, it's open to everyone. So why don't we all do it, you know? But what we see is the children of Israel trusted in religious artifacts. They trusted in religious men. Right? They trusted in their armies. They trusted in their emotions. But they didn't trust God. And you know what? It's, we, we can talk about... Um, Let's see, we're Calvary Chapel. We're not immune from it either. I'm sure there's Calvary Chapel pastors who trust in their buildings or trust in their Calvary Chapel name or trust in their big numbers. You know, I don't know, whatever the case may be. I pray that it doesn't happen here. Right? We need to trust in God alone because we'll, there'll be a difference, an observable distance, difference when we start to put that gap between ourselves and the Lord. Verse 12. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the men came into the city, the man came into the city and told it, and all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came hastily and told Eli, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy and he judged Israel 40 years. So what we have here is a Benjamite soldier comes back to Shiloh to report the bad news of the battle. Now Eli's in Shiloh with anxiety waiting to hear the news. Certainly I'm sure about his sons, but specifically is mentioned the ark of the covenant. Now, you know, I kind of, Eli's a strange guy. If you, if you really look at him, he has, at times you think he's really doing the right thing, and at times he's way off base. You know, God judges him. He tells him uh, the reasons for why. And it seemed like God gave him so many warnings through so many people. And here was a guy who was kind of half in, 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 in God and half in the world and, and religion, you know. So he, he's a very hard person for me to, to figure out a very confusing character, but he was unstable. He was unstable because he was double-minded. James tells us that. He was unstable in all his ways because of his constant going flip-flopping back and forth. So here's the demise of Eli as well as his sons and the heavily defeated Israelites. Now, it seems gloomy, and certainly when you're middle, in the middle of something that's bad, it really does seem gloomy, but sometimes it's good. Even if something happens to us, maybe God's cleaning us out. Maybe God's showing us something. Maybe the only way he can get our attention is to allow something to happen in our lives. Uh, I was recently visiting someone in the hospital, and, and he said, maybe God's trying to get my attention. He's trying to slow me down. So, uh, man, that's, that's really a wise perception. I mean, it could just be it happens. <laughs> but sometimes we need to look at it 
and, and say, hey, it doesn't look good, but maybe what, what's the rest of the story here? What's God doing in here? But anyway, God was cleaning out the nation of Israel. The old guard was going out, and the new guard was coming in, really, with Samuel. And Eli dies an ignominious death, told in detail, right? Uh, maybe a warning to the reader. Certainly, when we read things like this, we could say, gee, I, I hope I never get to be like Eli. Am I starting to follow that path of, of separation and, and getting farther from the Lord? You know, uh, that's why fellowship is good. Because we can tell, brothers and sisters, you know, you, you can tell uh, when something's not right. You know somebody well, they're another believer, and there's just something that's not right. Uh, and you, you can pick up on it. You know, how are you doing, sister? How are things going? Brother, you know, I haven't seen you in a few weeks. What's going on? And, and a, although sometimes we try to, there's a facade of, oh, yeah, praise the Lord. Everything's great. You know, the lingo. But you can tell that something is, is wrong. And we need to have that buffering with each other, that iron sharpening iron. The Bible talks about isolation. It's man's desire, but it, it rages against all wise judgment. Proverbs 18 tells us. Uh, verse 19 the last few verses. Now his daughter-in-law, Finus's wife, was with child, due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, which means inglorious saying, quote, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of, the, of God has been captured. So Finus's wife hears the news and she's so distraught that even though she's about to give birth and probably the the shock of the news caused an emotional re reaction and maybe precipitated that. Uh, but she goes to give birth, and it's a boy. And in those days, uh, if the, especially if it was a firstborn and it was a boy, uh, certainly that would have been a cause for much celebration, but she refuses to be comforted. And, you know, I have some... Uh, sometimes I'll check out what other people think about the, the thing, and, and I kind of get a thought that I think the Lord's showing me. Uh, and, I'll, you know, some men I respect, I'll read their stuff. I gotta say, I, I depart from company on this one. Uh, there are some that paint her in a good light, that she was concerned about the ark, uh, although I tend to think that she's still attached to the, that old guard, that old guard mentality, because what about the Lord? You know what I'm saying? Like, there's no hope. You're giving birth to a, a, a baby boy and, and the Lord's not here and you're, you know, you're just gonna give it up or whatever, but uh, you know, I, I depart company. I, I look at this as that that God is doing something. And we see Samuel, you know, he sees the defeat too, but he, he responds and he continues and he keeps pressing forward and he knows that God has good things for the nation. He's looking for revival. Things are happening under his leadership. So it doesn't really deter him, but some are deterred by that. And I, there's one scripture that uh, I really like, that, uh, or one analogy that Jesus uses, and I'll just go through that quickly. Luke 5, 36, that's only a few verses. Uh, Luke 5, 36 to 39, Jesus says this, no one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new one makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. 
and no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new. For he says the old is better. That's so telling. Some are so, listen, and it could be the wrong thing. You're so set in your ways. And I know as I get older, I become a little set in my ways. Uh, but the Lord's always teaching me something new. But when you're so used to drinking the old, the new, which is a picture of something better, you're not really into it. You're still good with the old way and the old system. Uh, so Jesus does talk about this. And uh, the wineskins and the wine is a picture of the Holy Spirit coming. The new covenant, the covenant of grace was coming upon the Jewish people. Hey, this is awesome. But some of them were so stuck in the old system, they were old wineskins. And they couldn't handle the new wine. They couldn't handle the glorious things that God was going to do. And in the world, the fermentation process would have burst the skins because they weren't elastic anymore. But of course, the spiritual implication is that there are just some that are just so, uh, they just don't get it. You know, the light doesn't go on. So I can, I can see that with her, and, and certainly we can see that in our own lives, too. And no matter how old we get, we should really uh, allow the Lord room to work in our lives, to expand us, to, to roll with the punches, to be flexible. Uh, Chuck Smith says that, he says, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. You know what I'm saying? So that's pretty good. But I also see that... Uh, you know, maybe, maybe in her a weak faith, not concerned about what the Lord's going to do. I don't I mean to beat on this woman too much, but I do think that she is a symbol. She's emblematic of, of an attitude, right, that hopefully we don't have. Uh, even today, I see that, uh, uh, you know, you hear about, and more and more, I think we are in the age of apostasy. The word of God is not being preached that much anymore. The true gospel you know, why are we saved? Why is this so good? What a good deal. Because we're saved from hell. That's where sinners go. So you got to talk about hell because the gospel, you know, you don't get the full understanding of the gospel without understanding you're saved. Why do I need a savior? What am I saved from? Oh, yeah, that's the part. Hell, yeah, this is really bad. And this is where you're headed if you don't trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So knowing this, this looks so much better. And, and it does. And then you get the full picture. So I have a problem also with these preachers that are only preaching good things. They just, every Sunday morning, they want to lift your spirits. They want to give you an emotional high so you feel good about yourself Sunday. But are they feeding you any meat of the word? And, and listen, I, I don't like to preach about hell. I don't take pleasure in it, reading about things where people are dying and then there's sorrow and all that. But you know what? That's part of the human experience, right? And, and sometimes we need to get it to understand what, what, what a great deal the Lord has for us for free. And I, and I see, too, that uh, we live in a culture where more and more pastors are falling into sin. And, the, and the, the statistics, I've read them from the pulpit, saying that there's a negative effect on the pastorate, that more are leaving than coming in. And some of them coming in aren't even good. Uh, and then you've got these guys that are having a secret life, and uh, they get exposed, and the whole congregation's crushed. But you know what happens, ladies and gentlemen? Listen, I, again, I don't mean to come down too hard, but you show me a person who leaves and doesn't read God's word and doesn't pray and doesn't come to church anymore because a, a pastor fell, that's pathetic. Your focus is not on the Lord. 
You know, it could, and, and every pastor, including my, myself, has to say, what could happen to me? Because I'm frail, I'm weak, I'm, I'm flesh. Uh, I don't have any surprises for anybody. <laughs> but I'm just saying that I'm not prideful enough to say that I can't do something wrong or, or hurt the congregation. But we have to be willing to stop putting our eyes on men and put our eyes on the Lord. Understand? Put our eyes on the Lord. We need to get our eyes off a man. Get our eyes off the organization. Calvary, whoop-de-doo. You know what I'm saying? So what? All it means to me, the dove, you see, isn't it pretty? Uh, all the Calvary means to me is that we go and we go into God's word. If Calvary gets weird, I'm bailing and I'll find the next place. I'll take the dove off, put something else up to say, listen, we follow God's word. You know? Right? We need to get our eyes off of our circumstances. We need to get our eyes off of ourselves. And brothers and sisters, we need to put our eyes on Jesus where they belong. Let's pray. For recording purposes.